don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh, Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 32. It is the third installment of our October mini-series, and today we are looking at Peter and the Farm from 2016 and The Biggest Little Farm from 2018, a couple of films that uh, contrast the lived experience of organic farming, uh, and that's kind of the least I could say about them, I think. <laughs> yeah. Two, two very different films with, uh, in some ways, similar subject matter. Yeah. And, and characters, meaning like the people that are being documented that are about as different, I think, as people could be. Um, <laughs> I, I'll just say right off the bat, and I've already kind of told you this, I, I absolutely loved Peter and the Farm. I think it's a, it's a great piece of documentary making and as far as the biggest little farm goes i am not really a fan at all of it um for for there's a there's a there's an issue of uh ethos i feel like in in both of these where um in peter and the farm you really feel a strong sense of honesty on the filmmaker's part. And it's the exact opposite in the biggest little farm. And I, I put that in my notes, actually that the, the biggest difference is just a, a matter of, of honesty in the filmmaking. Um, so Peter and the farm is directed by Tony stone who has done uh, another documentary. He's directed like a music video for REM. Uh, he's married to Melissa Oftermar, who was in the band hole. Uh, among some other musical projects hmm. um pretty interesting and they own uh like a performance space in upstate new york i only know this because i once i started going down the rabbit hole of this film i was like who is tony stone and why hasn't he made anything else that i've heard of um yeah and i think i want to say he and his his wife uh had made like uh fiction films as well yeah and they're about vikings sort of <laughs> yeah which is uh, i don't understand they must be really into vikings i guess uh this film has nothing to do with vikings really um and then the biggest little farm was directed by uh, john chester uh starring john chester and his wife molly uh and john chester i only i haven't really done any research into him because i wasn't as interested but from the film tells you that he is kind of a, a documentarian as well or a you know shot footage he was a yeah so I, I looked him up a little bit he was a uh like a wildlife photographer and he i believe made a few short films that were in some way uh affiliated with like oprah uh, right. so on somehow on oprah's i don't know if it's on her show or on her network now anyway he was making short films for oprah is what uh the internet told me <laughs> and, and then his wife was like a like a cooking person like a youtube cooking personality or something yeah um which kind of comes Cele back around uh, like an internet celebrity chef maybe something like that. at least that's what it seemed like and at the end yeah. it comes back around that you know they're serving food at their massive organic farm that they live on um <laughs> but 
yeah, the, just I guess we can just. I, I, I would rather start with Peter and the farm. It doesn't really matter. We'll just kind of jump around, I guess. But yeah, yeah. Peter and the farm. Uh, story of Peter Dunning out on his farm in Vermont. He's what something like sixty-eight or something. Wait, how old does he say he is? Sixty-four or something like that. I I think he's sixty-eight because he says he bought the farm when he was thirty-three, and he's been doing it for thirty-five years at the at the time of the filming. Yeah. So he's probably seventy two now or so and i i really was trying to find out if he was still alive or not and there's no information so i guess he's alive yeah um probably still they're plugging away yeah because i mean at one point uh, you hear him discussing with i think it's the assistant director who he refers to as dylan uh you know the he had come to the filmmakers with the idea of them documenting his suicide yeah which tells you all you need to know about the tone of the film i think um so yeah he he says he bought the farm in 1978 so he's been there for you know decades and has had all these trials and tribulations in his personal life and with the farm as well in the intersection of the two and just early on in the film that they have a scene that you know talk about setting the tone it just sets the tone for me perfectly and it's when he kills the sheep very early on. Yes. And he's holding yes. the sheep between his knees and he's got the 22 and he goes to, he's like trying to, you know, shoot the sheep in the back of the head and something goes wrong with the gun and he's just like cursing and like, you know, yeah. fiddling with the gun and then eventually it works and then he shoots the sheep and then you know goes through skinning it and all of that. But that was just such a perfect kind of encapsulation of everything that was to come after that. Right. And like compare that or contrast that with uh, John in the biggest little farm having a fucking existential crisis when he shoots the uh, coyote. Yeah. You know uh, what I'm saying? And, and I don't I don't want to I don't want to make fun of the idea of being sensitive towards killing animals. I I couldn't do it. Uh but what I am, what I'm pointing at here is that farming is not for animal lovers. Uh, and, and what we were talking about earlier, the dishonesty of the film, uh, that sort of voiceover that John has when mm-hmm. he, sh- after he shoots the coyote feels very post-production added oh, yeah. for, uh, narrative, you know dramatization or something and that's something that to be honest that was my least favorite part of the film as far as like a filmmaking standpoint goes is that in the biggest little farm it's not just that voiceover but to me all of the voiceover almost seemed like it was added in post-production and it seemed a lot like those reality shows where they do that right right and and, and obviously obviously like we're talking about this in a weird way we're like I mean, all voiceover is an element of post-production. Yeah. But what we're what we're saying, I think, is that the maybe the idea for voiceover feels added on uh, oh, well, to no, where actually, to where they're like trying to control, you know, yeah. how you feel about this by by putting in these like sort of vaguely poetic things. Yeah, and I actually I misspoke. It's not the voiceover. It's it's just like dialogue when they're talking and they're just Ah. walking around the farm, like saying things, it seemed, 
as if none of those things that they said had actually been said in the moment. It seemed as if they were adding them. And uh, so you would never see their faces when they were saying them, it seemed. <laughs> and so it, to me, it, it, that, that's that's what I meant. So it's, it's voiceover, but it's played off as if it's just dialogue that's happening in the moment. I see, I see. And so it, that drove me crazy because it seemed like nothing they ever said was actually said in the moment. And it was all very like curated after the fact. Right. And I, I suspect maybe I'm a cynical bastard, but early in the film when they're talking about how they finance this thing uh, and they got investors, uh, you know, who, who they say saw that the future of farming was was in this sort of organic, harmonious way. I suspect that part of that pitch was the uh, inc- uh, included the documentary itself oh for it would almost have to right because it's like a seven-year project right that or at least they say it was a seven-year project but they don't mention that in the film because that makes it you know less about farming and more about you know becomes this sort of pseudo event yeah it's It's like this thing that exists just to be televised in some way yeah and it's and that's kind of one of the fundamental divides between the two films because with Peter, he's the guy, like he's the one guy on the farm. He's doing all the stuff and he has people that come and help him shear the sheep. And he has like a doctor that comes and looks at the cows and all that, but he's doing all the day-to-day operation stuff by himself. Yeah. And if he's not the fucking directors are jumping in and like helping him, <laughs> helping him bell hay and shit. And I swear the depth of field on that shot is all fucked up where, where the guy's helping him saw the logs yeah. And it looks like his jacket is about to get caught in the blade. There's no way it is. Like I said, it's just like the depth of field. Yeah, it made me of made the me camera, but it it's probably intentional because it makes you nervous the whole time. Oh yeah, like every time the guy would go would reach and like grab the log to take it off the little frame thing. Yes, uh, and Peter would just like saw, and then he would stop, and then the guy would grab it. It always looked like he was like, you know, an inch away from the blade. Right. Um, and here he and here Peter is with this like, you know, his hand, which has been mangled in an industrial sort of accident. Yeah. Uh, which is you know, the way it's shot. That. Like it, the way the movie shot is I did not even notice that until he told the story about it. So I don't know Be- if, if I'm just unobservant or what's no, going on. No, because the only reason I had seen this before and I remembered it. And I was actually looking for it. And there are a few times before he tells the story that you can see it. But if you're not looking for it, you're not, you know, and that would be a weird thing to look for. Yeah. Uh, But there's that. And then there's um, with the the biggest little farm. They have a crew of it seems like dozens of workers working with them, like out in the fields. mm -hmm. And there's even that one moment when uh, John... Uh, talks down to one of them when he sees like oh, the gophers like or the groundhogs or whatever like the cover crops and he's like well that's the only way that we can build the topsoil jose or, or whatever he says and then he just <laughs> kind of walks away from him but they have this really large crew and they have this guy that's like this farming guru buddha guy uh, yeah. leading them in their their uh their quest and so it it's I don't know. There's just a lot of elements going through. And even though I'm sure it was difficult work, they had a lot of people kind of backing them investors and doing the actual work. Oh oh yeah. And it's, 
the scale of it is is you know as the title suggests pretty pretty big and you see those aerial shots throughout the film i mean this is a highly uh modern sort of uh endeavor where they are i mean that land is sculpted um by the end of that movie absolutely and, and they're it, having it's like, like the, the landscaping is like immaculate it's like it, it does have you you mentioned uh, just a second ago it has a very sort of reality show feel a sort of extreme makeover sort of feel yeah and the, just at the end when they have all of the uh tourists coming and they're like who came from the farthest and there's people that came from like china um mm. And it, so they become like a, one of those California farms where you pay and you go out and tour and then they cook you dinner. And it's like, we raised this cow on the mm-hmm. farm or whatever. Um, and it is beautiful. Like, don't get me wrong. It's like a beautiful property, but it's a yeah. very curated manicured property um, that's put together for the sake of being this kind of showpiece. Whereas Peter's farm is just like, if you, First off, I don't think you would ever just stumble upon it because it's like tucked back up in the hills. But if you saw it, you'd be like, no one lives here. This is abandoned. Right. Well, one thing I want to talk about and I think is worth talking about is how Peter's Farm has its roots in like 1960s counterculture ideology. And Peter is an artist Mm -hmm. and a farmer. And the biggest little farm has its roots in like show business. You know, this guy, like I said, he's making short films for Oprah and she's a, you know, a cooking personality, a a chef. I don't know. Uh, And so the biggest little farm feels ultimately like a, like a um, entertainment endeavor. And, And don't get me wrong. I don't doubt that these people are out there working their asses off on a farm. I'm just saying the initial uh, instinct is, is tied up in entertainment. And that is uh, does not seem to be the case at all with uh, Peter Dunning. Uh, and, and so I think you can sort of feel there's a there's a real fuck you at the heart of Peter's farm. You know, and, and at the heart of his whole farming endeavor. And you don't really feel there's a sort of depressing, healthy mindedness going on in the biggest little farm that's like feels a little psychotic to me. Like everyone's so fucking happy all the time. And even their even their moments of doubt and depression are sort of laced with these optimistic sort of poetic things yeah. um and a, that's it just feels dishonest yeah there, there's like a, a definite domestic tranquility kind of at work in biggest little farm i mean mm-hmm. the, it ends with them having a baby and so now mm-hmm. their family's complete and all that sort of shit whereas with peter his life and his family has literally fallen apart and like his son hates him and his wife ups and up and leaves him and He's, he said he says on camera that he hates his son. Oh yeah, definitely. Jesus um, Christ. And so it's just this it, it's kind of the opposite. And the I don't know, I think this point about him being uh coming out of the counterculture and being an artist and all that is 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 a really good one to make. 
uh, because his aims for farming are just foundationally different from the, the couple in the biggest little farm. But I think what's important is instead of this movie playing as if, as if it's like the last death rattle of the counterculture and Peter learned that it was all for naught, he, he kind of learns a different lesson than the one he was seeking out to learn. And so he, at, at the end of the film, uh, like, I don't know if this is the impression you got, but it seems as if he really, and he even kind of says that he like loves the farm, even though he's also trapped on it, more or less, he has a genuine love for it. And at the, at one point in the film, when he's drunk and he's rambling, he says, you know, I, I would kill myself, but then I, you know, I, I worry about the farm. Like the only reason I don't is because of the farm and he has yeah, this beautiful poem it, and all that. What you see, what I think is so brilliant about it is that I think we're supposed to see that Peter kind of is the farm and the farm kind of is Peter. And you see that his real hardcore depression kicks in in winter. Yeah. Uh, which made, which sort of clued me into this. And, and then you see him going strong in the spring after that passes. And you see that his emotions, you know, beyond some sort of, you know, seasonal affective disorder, uh, kind of coincide with the seasons in the farm. Um, and, and I, I think maybe one thing the filmmakers might be trying to suggest is that this is what it looks like when you take place seriously and you actually care for a piece of land. You become it and it becomes you. And that, and, and we're talking about real Mother Earth here, nature, not some cartoon version like you see in some parts of the biggest little farm. And that's it. And that process of becoming is not necessarily pretty because the world is not necessarily pretty. In fact, farming is a, uh, you know, is humans kind of feasting on death, as you see very clearly in both of these films. There's just sort of rose colored glasses on in the biggest little farm, but you see plenty of death in both of these movies. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, I think that point about, Peter or the Peter and the farm showing what it what it is to really be you know emplaced right to be in a place so thoroughly and to know it so well and be so entrenched in it that it kind of becomes you and you become it that sort of thing so mm -hmm. you know whereas a lot of people think of a counterculture as being like I'm going to withdraw from society and fuck your system and I'm going to go and live off the land. This was I thought you were going to say fuck your sister. Fuck your sister. <laughs> I fuck your mother. Uh, but but no, like it's less about, or it, it's sort of revealed to be less about escaping from society and more about becoming part of a place. I guess is is a way that I, I would describe it. Yeah, it's it's like he doesn't really have a strong take on like you know, in quote society, he just like, is kind of indifferent to it. He just wants to do his thing. Yeah. Um, and, and something I, I thought that was interesting and a good contrast again with the biggest little farm is that he talks about wanting Peter talks about wanting to getting into farming and wanting to have the respect, how important it was for him to have the respect of the other farmers. Mm -hmm. And you see, uh, John and Molly in the biggest little farm 
just sort of flying by the seat of their pants and hiring these, you know, outside experts to consult. And, and of course, again, they're probably doing a ton of research, but it's different. Um, their or their com- whole orientation is different. This is not some sort of legacy they are inheriting. This is a a passion project in some way. Yeah. Uh, but Peter, this is like in sort of entrenched in his life, and it is like again the whole idea of you know he is the farm. This is like part of his uh, self esteem is farming. Like his whole conception of himself has to do with who he is as a farmer. Yeah. And the one thing that Biggest Little Farm does that I really appreciated uh, was, was kind of related to their attitude to the other farmers around them. Cause all they do is kind of talk shit about them. And they like when the tops, when they have that flood or all that heavy rain and they're like, Oh, all their topsoil floated away and ours was fine because we had all the cover crops and the, all that shit. And so it it was kind of nice in that way and in that sort of twisted sense that organic farming of the kind that they're doing where they're trying to build some sort of interconnected web of of all these living things, which is, you know, that just happens in a forest by nature, but they're trying to like recreate it in this, this plot of land. It, yeah. Like that kind of has to become the commercial way of farming. Right. Um so it, it, that's the only part of the film that kind of leaves me a little bit conflicted because I think the fact that it ultimately succeeds is awesome. Like that's great. I just think yeah, that the way they're explaining I, I, it is sort of, you know, it, like right. say dishonest if nothing else. No, none of my criticisms are of like the farming, you know, farming techniques or anything like that. I don't even know enough about it to criticize farming techniques. Uh, it's it's really just the media aspect of it, you know, that mm-hmm. is uh, like like we've said is feels dishonest. Uh, but the idea of of biodiversity, for sure, um, very important. And you see, this is a uh, you know not a a thing that these people invented. This has been going on for a while with with thoughtful farmers and. Uh, Especially there's a guy named Joel Salatin, who I'm sure we've you know, probably mentioned on this podcast before, who who's the owner of uh, Polyface Farms in Virginia. He's in uh, several documentaries and he's got several books. And, uh, you know, this is the sort of farming he does, too, where you're trying to get the most out of uh, the small piece of land that you have really understanding all the moving parts and how they work together so that a small piece of land can produce enough food for, you know, way more than the people on the farm and just the surrounding community. And, and, and this gets into, you know, one of the big issues people talk about with organic farming is that it, it cannot sustain an overpopulated world. And that is what a lot of organic farmers, you know, sort of are trying to disprove that you can have a relatively small farm, smaller at least than, you know, the industrial, you know, agribusiness farms uh, and feed, you know, 
way more people than than a lot of people estimate uh, a small farm can feed to show that this is the correct way to do it uh, and that industrial agriculture is is not only harmful but is unnecessary yeah and it's just sort of it, it always makes me think of the way that i don't know if i was uh like explicitly taught this or if i just sort of thought about it this way and maybe i'm the only one but when you're growing up you're sort of taught that farming only occurs in certain areas and that's sort of where the food comes from so you learn about like here's the bread basket of america and it's in the middle and that's where they grow all the wheat and all that other good stuff and so you grow up thinking of like oh that's like the farm district right you get this like <laughs> hunger games breakdown of how the the country works in your head so you think of like no this isn't the place where we farm this is the place where we build cars or this is the place where they have the alligators or whatever you don't think about it as a place with farms um when really that's just the farthest thing from the truth so i think in, in some sense it's kind of a there's a kind of mental block where you don't think about uh sort of where farming is actually taking place and what it actually looks like and that's really the strength of peter and the farm is that it shows you you know here's what this looks like more or less and it's in vermont a place that maybe you don't think about you think about like crunchy granola hippies and farmers markets and stuff. And you don't really think about where the actual product is coming from. Mm-hmm. And here's this guy. And you know, it, it, I, I don't want to romanticize it because Peter is like a special case, right? He's a very unique dude with a very unique past and view on life and um, is extremely articulate. I don't know if every farmer would be as articulate and sort of <laughs> self-reflective so. as Peter. <laughs> I mean, in in the other film that he's definitely not, John's definitely not, um, right. but you know, just just the way that it shifts your view of how you think about farming, um, I think is is important, an important thing that the film's doing. Yeah, um, and going back to what we sort of said earlier about Peter's orientation, uh, you know, as a painter or as an artist of any kind. Uh, and a poet, apparently, uh, there's something I, I got the feeling watching Peter in the farm that whoever the director of photography was, was sort of in love with this farm, like, because it's a, an aesthetically beautiful film in addition to like the, you know, sort of captivating story it, it tells. Uh, there are some of the most beautiful shots. It looks like fucking Terrence Malick uh, of just like sunsets. Um, and, and there's something I, I remember hearing an interview uh, several years ago. I think it's, it's, it's in a Curtis white book where Curtis white is interviewing a guy named Michael Abelman, who's a photographer and a and a writer and he had just published a book called fields of plenty where he's just sort of uh documenting all these organic farms and showing sort of innovative farmers and um you know traditional uh i i don't even know the full extent of it anyway there's a book called fields of plenty that is sort of a uh, book of photographs and stories about organic farms 
And one of them makes the point that so many people who are interested in food and agriculture are identify as like artists. So like Curtis White's writing this book and he's a novelist and a social critic. Uh, this guy, Michael Abelman is a writer and a photographer and here he is writing about organic farms. Peter Dunning is a, a painter and a poet. Um, so there's something to be said, I think just for like the aesthetic of a farm. And it's like, it's like just the aesthetics of it makes it a worthwhile endeavor. It's like, even if you don't care about, um, uh, you know, buying organic food or, or whatever it is that people care about, just like the physical beauty of a farm is in some ways, I think, attractive and, and the reason people kind of get on board with this. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in biggest little farm, it's kind of taken to an extreme because it's, you know, they design the rows to have this beautiful pattern and they even have the, the anecdote at the end about the, I can't remember the guy's name that was like their, their like spiritual guide through farming. Was uh, it Alan? Yeah, I think that was it. And so they're like, oh, they asked Alan, did you design it like that for the water drainage? And he was like, yeah. And also because it's fucking beautiful, <laughs> like that kind of thing. <laughs> which is like, that was one of my favorite parts of the film. Cause it's like, yeah, why not? Like it is beautiful. Uh, and even, you know, um, Peter kind of finds beauty in these interesting places. And it makes me think of, uh, th this is sort of less about the point you're making. Uh, but toward the end, he's like bringing the cider up from the basement and there's a bunch of mold growing on the side of that freezer or whatever it is. And he talks about oh. how he laid down <laughs> yeah. and he like scratched a landscape out of the mold on the side of this freezer. And so I think part of it is that like a farm is, is just kind of a beautiful thing to behold, I guess, if it's not like a, some sort of monstrous factory farming operation. Um, but also maybe it sort of takes people who know how to find beauty in places or that, it, you know, it helps if you can find beauty or like seek beauty out or try to create or, beauty or, on your own. Yeah. Or to make it. Yeah. Um, because Peter's definitely attempting to do that a lot of a lot of the time i think when he's not just hammered drunk right and, and did you see whatever. i mean the first time you see his like studio where all his paintings are mm -hmm. it's like the inside of his house is amazing and i don't mean like ornate i just mean so aesthetically pleasing it is exactly what you want the inside of a farmhouse to look like Yes. Like, I, I just remember thinking about the floors a lot because mm -hmm. they just had that like farmhouse look to them, <laughs> right. I guess. And there's a scene where he's like sweeping. <laughs> yes. And I was like, oh, this is actually like really nice and pleasing right now to just watch him sweep this floor. <laughs> right. Um, Such a strange detail to include, but it it really puts you there in the moment. Yeah. And, and just the, the sheer amount of stuff that he's doing so he's he's working on like the animal husbandry stuff for like sheep and some cows and a bunch of chickens and um 
he's making cider in his basement so he can get drunk and he's like planting the fields and bailing the hay and uh, I assume doing repairs when they pop up and that sort of stuff. Um, it's just kind of like the sheer amount of work that he's doing on a daily basis is just uh, amazing to me. Yeah. How many things he knows how to do. It's yeah. just kind of incredible. And the fact that he, he even explains like when I started, I had no clue what I was doing. And like I fucked up so many times and then eventually he learns how to do it in a way that that's not, you know, perfect, but it works. And so he keeps doing it that way. And I love how like all his records are just like handwritten in pencil and a notebook. (laughs) And they're all like they are, but they're they're very like detailed and like spot like the scene where he's processing the sheep, which is one of my favorite scenes. And he busts out his book and he's like flipping through it and he's trying to find the right number for the sheep. Mm-hmm. And he goes to the sheep and he looks at its ear and he's like, oh, wait, that's not you. <laughs> and like has to go and find the other one. Right. And that's also the scene where he's got the shepherd's crook and he's trying to like get the sheep. And he like the sheep keeps like wiggling out of his hands and eventually he just falls down. Yeah, and he's like he laying says, on. He's like, I, I fucking, I hate, fucking sheep. hate sheep. <laughs> and like and that's what's great is like he loves the farm and he loves what he's able to accomplish and what the farm gives to him but when it comes down to the work of it he just fucking hates it he yeah. hates dealing with the animals he hates having to go and like mess with the 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 hay baler and fix it and all that sort of stuff um but you know he does anyway there's that, that great scene when they're about to bale the hay and the I don't know if it's Dylan or or the the main director. Or somebody's like, "Well, does your baler work?" And he just gets that look on his face. He's like, "You never fucking ask that." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "It worked when I put it away." <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like he's breached some sort of etiquette that he doesn't know about. Yeah, yeah. You he gets this look on his face like. Like he just like farted at the dinner table or something. This motherfucker really asked if my belly works. <laughs> um, but yeah, he just like, you could tell he just, he's doing the work and he's doing it well, I guess for the most part, but he just sort of hates it. And yeah. a lot of his despair in life comes from the repetitiveness of just all the time, every season doing this forever, seemingly until he dies. There's a great, um, I don't know if you read the synopsis of the movie, like the little blurb. So here, here's the blurb, and this comes, uh, I think this is just like the official blurb. It says, Peter Dunning is the proud proprietor of Mile Hill Farm, which sits on 187 idyllic acres in Vermont. The land's 38 harvests have seen the arrivals and departures of three wives and four children, leaving Peter with only animals and memories. The arrival of a film crew causes him to confront his history and his legacy, passing along along hard-won agricultural wisdom, even as as he doubts the meaning of the work he is fated to perform until death. (laughs) So in a a way, kind of at the end of the film, it's sort of, it's so kind of captivating and beautiful because it's sort of like a direct representation of Camus. You know, you have to imagine Sisyphus smiling Mm -hmm. because he's like, oh, the the farm's doing great and and it's, I love it. And, you know, he's wearing his T-shirt and he's like in high spirits and he's hanging out with his new woman or whatever. Yeah. But, you know, like 10 minutes later, he's going to be like, I want to fucking kill myself. I hate this. <laughs> I hate these sheep. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and they, I think they do, the filmmakers do a good job of showing that this is not like a romantic sort of, uh, uh, or a romanticization. Like he has a drinking problem, you know, and that mm-hmm. is a big part of his emotional instability, you know, uh, and, and you, you hear him drunk at least, at least two times in the film. There's one where it's just audio. You don't see it, but he, you, they're inside talking and you can tell Peter's hammered and he's talking about how he feels closer to, you know, to them, the, the filmmaker guys than he's ever felt to other men. And he's like, don't get me wrong. I just fucked a woman like last Thursday. So I'm not gay, but. I feel closer to you guys than I've ever felt to any other guys. Uh, and then later when he's sort of on his, on his, uh, when he's feeling very depressed and he's like drunk in the back seat of the car, yeah. uh, you know, so they don't romanticize it so much that, you know, clearly this guy has a, a drinking problem. Yeah. And, and he, you know, he's very forthcoming about it too. When they're trying to convince him to, you know, go to a rehab or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and he's just talking about how awful it is. And he's like, yeah, it sucks. I have to wake up two or three times during the night to drink a bunch of rum. So I don't get the shakes and, and all this. And then there's a sort of strange thing toward the end when it's finally spring and he's talking about how he quit drinking for a while. Do you remember this when he's, he's yeah, telling the story about for like the, a month? Yeah, like the sheep uh, was having the the calf. I guess that's what, is that what you call a baby sheep a calf? It was, it was having a baby and it was breech and it was stuck and she was in labor for like hours and hours and hours and eventually he's just like I can't deal with this and it like goes and gets the gun and tries to shoot the sheep and it it doesn't fire and he realizes like okay to like i'd have to take the gun apart to get it to work so i guess i'll just have to deal with this and then eventually like after all this struggle and like hours of trying to get the calf out it happens and then i guess that they live and it's like this weird miraculous thing that happens and he goes in and he's like and i just didn't touch another drop <laughs> for a while <laughs> uh just quit um yeah but then just like a casual miracle story yeah and then uh he meets the his new girlfriend or whatever at the end he's like and then it all went to hell and that's kind of all that he tells us about it and it's like okay cool like (laughs) i guess that's the whole story it's just like (laughs) it's like it's so far removed from my lifestyle and sort of way of being in the world to imagine peter dunning out on this farm in vermont by himself grappling with this like this sheep that is in this like terrible painful prolonged labor and like trying to figure out what the fuck do I do and then like have this thing happen that is sort of like a weird minor miracle and just be like okay now what do I do with this <laughs> like <laughs> how, how do I, what what am I doing yeah. what is happening like it's just so yeah. strange and and you see again back to how like he is the farm and the farm is him you see how you know, integral it is to every aspect of his life when he's talking about telling 
one of or telling his children where they were conceived oh, yeah, because yeah. all of his children were born apparently when he was having sex outside like yeah yeah so at different places on the farm it's like a coyote was attacking so he and the uh, his i don't know if it was his wife or at the time uh you know were like camped out to find out what was you know to scare off the coyote or something and in the meantime <laughs> conceived a child yeah and that that's just you know again goes to show kind of how deeply tied to the place he is because he has that story and then there's a story about the pond and kind of the former glory days of the pond and how he had like a beach set up over there and the girls would walk in and then all the guys would jump in over here and everybody was stark naked and that kind of story and now it's it's still like a, a nice pond but it's like not super manicured or anything yeah just all those cool stories of you know his 30 plus years living on this farm and the things that he's experienced it, it really did make me think of a of a movie we have alluded to a few times uh that maybe we'll get around to someday is uh rebecca miller's the ballad of jack and rose with uh daniel day lewis and you sort of see day lewis is a lives on a farm that used to be a hippie commune and it's sort of like he's like the last remaining guy you know from that era who still believes in all this stuff and uh he's there with his daughter and um that's a uh, to me a very problematic film but uh there are some similar themes going on in peter and the farm uh which is like you said you, you see peter as this sort of countercultural figure and this artist figure um, and yet living this rural kind of traditional farm life um, and you just sort of wonder like like when you hear him talking about he, he says he knows every word to west side story yeah and he was a marine apparently yeah um and you just wonder, like, what is it that leads people to their fate, you know? Like, this guy who knows every it, – it's always interesting to me to, to, to see people who live these sort of countercultural or, or agricultural lives. Uh, and their relationship to mainstream culture is always very interesting to me. In a way, it reminds me of Werner Herzog's Grizzly Man and – that guy, I can't remember remember his name, but you find out maybe halfway through the film that he's like an actor and he was like almost on a famous sitcom. Maybe it was Cheers or something. Uh, but it's just it's just so strange. I, I thought about that watching Peter in the farm when he's talking about West Side Story and like being in Hawaii uh, on leave from the Marines. It's just like these people who live these extreme lives are often, uh, you know, begin just like anyone else in, in a very sort of recognizable mainstream circumstance. And, you know, I don't know what it is that leads them to these strange places. Yeah, it is kind of, if nothing else, it's that interesting thing of like, 
a long, relatively long life lived in a way that is sort of outside of the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Or maybe not even at that outside of the mainstream, really, for his generation, where, you know, military service would have been, you'd been more likely to serve in the military. Um, but yeah, the fact that he's a Marine and he has a long story about, like, getting drunk with the Marines and Hawaii and, like, dancing down Main Street doing West Side L- Story. <laughs> Leading a procession uh, of dancing. Yeah, just crazy. It's just, like, all these stories and, like, all these crazy experiences. Um, it's just, I don't know. It's fascinating. Like it, you can tell sort of, I think why, uh, Tony Stone and, and this, his whole crew were so, were wanted to make the film or were like captivated by Peter because like, he's the kind of guy, if you met him and had a conversation with him, you'd be like, I got to keep talking to this guy. Like this dude right. is just like a gold mine of <laughs> just like insight and also like funny stories and all this sort of stuff. Um, it's also nice that they were actually, as far as it's depicted, were actually trying to like help him and, you know, be there if he needed somebody and they were helping him with the work and all that sort of stuff. Like that's all really, it was nice to see, I guess. Right. And it, and it goes a long way with like, like we started out saying with the sort of ethos of it, like it feels so honest that they're just trying to tell you. Uh, they're just trying to show you this guy's life and tell you this guy's story and not polish this movie, you know, over polish it to where it's this, you know, shining crystal of a thing and a marketable product. Uh, the, the way the biggest little farm does sort of feel like that. Yeah. And just, with the biggest little farm, I guess we should talk about it a little bit more. Um, because like not only was did I th- think it was the kind of worse of the two, I just thought it was the least interesting, <laughs> the less interesting of the two. But something that they did, and it, part of it's a filmmaking thing, and part of it's just like a general ideology thing, is so they open up with a very dramatic scene of a wildfire, like coming toward the farm, mm-hmm. and that's. So that's the opening. So we're led to believe like that's kind of the climax, right? And so we get to that point and, you know, they show the same scenes from the beginning and it's like, oh, the fire's coming and the wind shifting directions and we have to evacuate. And that lasts like two minutes and then everything's fine. And he has the, the little voiceover that's like sometimes, you know, all it takes is a change in the wind or whatever and then everything's yeah. fine. And it, it's just sort of a... I don't know. There's this thing where it's like there's never really a conflict or a danger that is putting the farm at risk, really, I guess. No, it seems very substantially financially backed. Yeah. And so even if the fire had hit, like maybe they could have just rebuilt or whatever. But it seems as if it was. It's something that I've noticed, again, watching reality shows. Something that they say in The Biggest Little Farm is in year one, it's like, we'd only been at it for six months and already we'd used up, uh, the entire budget. And it's like, okay. So when a normal person says that, what they mean is they don't have any money left. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And you hear this again on like house hunter type shows. They're like, Oh, we want this one. Uh, but it's not in our budget, but we're going to get it anyway. It's like, if it's not in your budget, 
then you can't get it. That's to a, a normal person who's not obscenely wealthy. That's what that means. And so when they say, oh, we're over budget, you know, we, we spent all of this year's money in six months. There's no real uh, like harm in that claim, clearly, because everything just keeps going as normal. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of like there are no consequences, right? They, they keep there's a lot of kind of contrived conflict like him shooting the coyote or whatever, which is, yeah. you know, again, yeah. a serious thing to have to like kill these animals, but it's not really a threat to the farm. I mean, they lose, what is it? They lose like 200 and something chickens. Yeah. And it seems to like not even dent their ability to <laughs> run this farm. Right. Um, and they keep buying these great Pyrenees dogs. Um, and like the dog eats the rooster. I don't know. They, they really, they really play up. That's the thing. It's like they, they're talking about the animals, but they're doing it kind of in a way that they're kind of anthropomorphizing them at the same time, especially with like the pig and the rooster that becomes like the friend, like boyfriend of the pig in their right. mind. And the dog, right? The whole, the way they explain it is the whole sort of, uh, thrust of it was they're trying to do something don't for their you dog. don't you dare talk shit about todd todd <laughs> um who's you know i i love dogs uh, but they make it seem as if like they did this for the dog they made a promise to the dog and that's why they needed to run this kind of seems like you hate dogs matt <laughs> well it's just that there's this view, dog, view hater. Of like, dog hater their view of animals where it's like they're slowly coming to realize that sometimes to run a farm you have to kill an animal um, versus Peter, who's very much like intertwined with these animals in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, and, uh, he even says at one point, Peter, um, he's making this point about being alone or like the diversity, biological diversity of the farm. And he says, you know, from the topsoil to like however many feet down, there are just billions of microbes and bacteria and things that are just everywhere. So he's making this point about his farm is like just bursting with life. Right. And so like, he's just another sort of living thing that's on this farm. That's making it work and helping it thrive when it does and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And that's, um, that's something I noticed about the biggest little farm is they keep talking about this like a web of life, yeah. which is, which is maybe more accurately called a web of death. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but the way they're talking about it, it reminds me of like Candide and like uh, the best of all possible worlds. It's as if in their minds, the world exists for human beings. And like all you have to do is like recognize this truth and you will see how the puzzle fits together in order to benefit humans it's like no what's actually happened is that humans have been here long enough and farming has been around long enough to where trial and error has revealed how to live in a decent and and regenerating way and you are inheriting you know this knowledge from thousands and thousands of years of tradition um 
you know, those books that it just sort of cuts to that he's reading in the night, those books were written by somebody yeah. a long time ago. And, and those books were, and those people were informed by previous books and previous books. And so that knowledge gets passed down. This is not some sort of secret truth you're tapping into. Um, and, and if you stick with that metaphor, like the web of life, it's like in that conception, thinking of humanity, you know, as the world, the world is sort of built for humans to, to cultivate. Um, I'm not saying it's not cultivatable, but it's not, the world was not made for humans to cultivate. Uh, we're sort of the spider in that web of life metaphor. Uh, and everything is made to work for us. Uh, and they talk about how precious life is. And yet, uh, you know, everything thrives in this farm on death and even says, you know, the impermanence of life is what makes this possible. Um, I'm not sure why they're so eager to celebrate that little truth. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I mean, when you you, you had a, a metaphor a while back that was, you know, they're talking about it as if it's kind of a puzzle and the pieces are falling together. And that's kind of how it's presented as sort of a mystery of they're trying to figure out what to do next. And then they figure out that's like, Oh, well this eats this and this eats this. And then we get the owl and it it eats that and we get the snake and all that sort of stuff. Isn't Um, all this death beautiful? Yeah. But it's just this kind of metaphor. Like you say, they view it as, Oh, we just had to figure out, we had to find all the pieces and figure out how they fit together when they forget the part at the beginning where a human being came up and it was a fully formed picture and they ripped it into little pieces and said, fuck this and threw it into the wind. <laughs> it's like, okay, now you got to go and gather them back up and figure out how, how it works again. Right. Um, but th- this idea of, you said it's, you know, they're inheriting these things and it is kind of presenting farming as a kind of inheritance, right? Because there are a lot of things about farming, especially I guess in the way Peter's doing them, that come down from just generations and like haven't really changed in, you know, centuries. Yeah. Um, and Peter, uh, you know, talking about inheritance talks about how he really wanted his son to take the farm and sort of carry it on. And now he doesn't have anyone to leave it to really. And he's, he's kind of, that's part of his kind of existential, you know, trauma that he's trying to figure out. Well, okay, I can just keep farming until I die, but then what happens to the farm? Yeah. No, that, that adds to the Sisyphean nature of yeah. his endeavor. And it's the it's opposite like, of Biggest Little Farm in which they have the son and they're like, oh, well, now we can leave the farm to our kid. Right. Well, what if the kid wants to like go sing show tunes or something? Like, what? I mean, <laughs> what if the kid doesn't want to be a farmer? You know? Yeah. And uh, just the, I don't know, the, the reasons for beginning to farm in the films and sort of how they're explained. Cause Peter's telling the story about how he bought this farm in 78 or whatever. And he had a friend that was like, well, do you know like how big this place is and all the stuff you have to do? And his response was, yeah, it sounds like fun. <laughs> and you know, he, he learns after 35 years that it's not quite as fun as he thought it was going to be. Right. So it seems like he's sort of like 
he jumps into it in that sort of idealistic way of like, I'm going to be an organic farmer. And then it kind of the shine wears off after a while. Whereas in, I, sorry, but you go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I think initially, I think organic farming is something he came to later. Uh, I think initially it was, it was not an organic farm. Cause I think he says something like for the last, However many years it's been an organic farm. Oh, is that in his like mission statement thing that he reads? I can't. I Maybe. can't remember. It's towards the beginning. Oh, that mission statement is you can find that online because when I was googling around, I found it, and he like wrote it in the eighties or whatever, and he it was part of like the promotional material for the farm when he would sell at markets mm-hmm. and stuff. Um, but you know, you, you contrast that beginning to the beginning and biggest little farm, which is, as we talked about is very well funded and backed by apparently some very wealthy people. Um, and their reasoning is just like the dog barks too much and our neighbors get mad and we've always wanted to do it anyway. So we thought, why not give it a shot? And it's sort of like, I don't know, it's like we bought a zoo or some shit. (laughs) <laughs> you think they're going to move and get like a little plot of land. It's like, no, we bought this enormous ranch. Yeah. Um, it's again, we keep coming back to this dishonesty. They are not telling us everything. It's like inspiration porn in a lot of ways of like the organic way of life can work, but it's very difficult, but we can do it. Right. And they're leaving out all of the, other stuff that that went into making that place run which if they had included it the documentary gets exponentially more interesting to me yeah the economics of transitioning from a very normal life in a small apartment to you know a a life organic farming and you know making money making your life and home in this unfortunately very uh unusual way yeah like what if we learn that like the the sort of uh i can't think of the word financial backing we learn like the big money bags behind this is like david schwimmer and it's all funded by ross from friends and so and he shows up at an event and he's like i'm glad to put this pork on your table it has the Schwimmer stamp of approval. I don't know. That's just more interesting to me than thinking like it, how it's presented, which is like, we're just a married couple going at it alone with our dog. when really there's a whole massive team of people helping them. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do a little search in here and see if we can't find, <laughs> see how far we have to dig before Monsanto comes up as a backer for the biggest little farm. Yeah, I will say that there was a scene that in Biggest Little Farm that was kind of reminiscent of Peter and the Farm, and it's when the coyote is trying to get through the fence and breaks its neck, and it's paralyzed, and they just show these yeah. extended shots of this paralyzed coyote with its eyes open, just like laying there, twitching. Yeah, that that was disturbing. Yeah, very much so, and that and it's played off as that, like the John's talking about how it's. You know, this is just the hardship of farming and all that. Um, when it only happened because, like, they've installed this fancy fence to try to keep the coyotes out. Um, and it, I don't know, it's just sort of that was one of those scenes that, that really stuck out to me as the reality of farming as opposed to, like, the snails, which is like this plague that descends upon them. 
but it's kind of funny to me <laughs> to see just like all these snails everywhere. And then they realize like, oh, we'll just let the, was it like, we'll let the ducks eat the snails or whatever. The ducks eat the snails and then rich people eat pate. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. And that's the circle <laughs> of life, folks. The beautiful uh, circle of life. It reminds me of uh, Zizek talking about uh, the Lion King, specifically Jordan Peterson's take on the Lion King and, uh, you know, the speech at the beginning that uh, Mufasa, I guess it is. Yeah. gives about this you know the circle of life and how you know we eat the hyenas and the hyenas eat the whatever and blah 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 circle of life and Zizek's you know talking about it in a in a Marxist sort of way and how it's like yeah it's easy to see beauty in it when you're literally the fucking king and you're at the top of the food chain um, yes Anyway, I, uh, that, that's sort of what I was getting at when I was talking about the metaphor of a web of life. You know, it's easy to to see beauty in the web of life when you're the spider. Yes, man. So, OK, I went to the Epricot Lane Farms website, which is the, the farm from the film. And I went to the our team section. Mm-hmm. This farm has a an executive director. It has a sales manager. It has a uh, where's the other one? HR person. <laughs> and, you know, it has people that are like irrigation and tractor operation. And there's a guy that's like the four legged livestock guy. Uh, but it's really interesting to see. And they they have like an advisor that does habitat and restoration stuff. Public relations manager. Yeah, they have a page for all of their farmer. Well, now you go to the farmers, it only tells you about John and Molly Chester because they're the only no farmers. No other farmers. <laughs> Except for those like uh, uh, three Mexican guys who had worked on the farm since they were five years old. Yeah. And he's the whole time telling them like why they're wrong. Like he, they keep <laughs> giving suggestions and he's like, no. Um, yeah, just just fantastic stuff i would really <laughs> I, I can't find anything about like where the, the money for this is coming from um it's david schwimmer i think you nailed it <laughs> God, I, <laughs> I really hope so schwimmer they have a whole product line 75 varieties of biodynamic certified fruit what if this was like not real at all and this was just like an experimental film? <laughs> the, it, how so? What do you mean? It's just like there's not actually a farm. It's just a set that was built and it's just a movie. <laughs> it's a, it's again, a movie. Again, fucking Schwimmer is behind this. They're trying to convince people that organic farming on that scale is possible and really it's not <laughs> and that's that's what it's like doing. it's like the moon landing you know it's <laughs> it's propaganda yeah they brought in uh you know paul thomas anderson to <laughs> shoot this farm oh goodness man and i really they keep using the word biodynamic 
So I think that's instead of organic, they're going for biodynamic as mm. the, the word. Oh my God. Let's see. This is from the Los Angeles times from, from this year, from May of this year. It says, uh, John and Molly Chester living that dream, that dream, you know, the one we all have, they left behind their day jobs in LA as a docu-series director and personal chef, respe- chef respectively. And have spent the last eight years turning the dry, nutrient-depleted dirt of a former horse ranch into a self-sustaining, biodynamic, 213-acre farm that produces fruits and vegetables for some of L.A.'s trendiest restaurants and freshly laid eggs that sell out in minutes at local farmer's markets and embraces topsoil practices that are said to help combat climate change. Are said to help combat climate change. (laughs) Science is still out. That's fantastic. And still like no, there's like no, no mention of how they pulled all this off from a financial standpoint. Maybe they just had a ton of money and had a bunch of like loans. Well, no, they say in the film that they talked investors into it. Yeah. But like, who do you even know? Maybe it's Oprah. You think Oprah did it? It's either her or Schwimmer. Those are the only two options. Uh, well, there's no, I can't find any documentation. I'm going to have to do a deep dive on this. Uh, contrast that to the, it looks like there's a review uh, of uh, Peter and the Farm from Vice from 2016. And the title is uh, Being a Farmer Sucks. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is the takeaway, right? And it's sort of like. I don't know, it does the kind of thing that a lot of depictions of things like that go, right? Like, for instance, you'll have like a movie um, about parenthood and the takeaway is that like parenthood really fucking blows, but it's worth it because of what you're able to accomplish and, you know, you see your child grow and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's, It's a similar kind of thing with the farm where it's like, it's not romantic. It's not even... Like it's beautiful in parts, right? But for the most part, it's very brutal and tough and lonely. And it's always there every day. You have to get up and milk the damn cows and let the sheep out and all that sort of stuff. Um, But at the end, like there, not even at the end, because there is no end. There are spots in which it is worth it. And then that goes away and it becomes tedious and stupid again. And then it's worth it for a little while. It's kind of like life, right? It's tedious and stupid for a lot of it. And then every now and then you're like, every now and then you have the, the Kurt Vonnegut thing where you're like, if this isn't nice, then I don't know what is. And then it goes right. back to being shit for a minute. Here's a, uh, <clears throat> in this Vice article, here's some information I did not know about Peter and the Farm. This is how the documentary came to be. Filmmaker Tony Stone met Dunning as a child when his family would visit the local farmer's market and chat him up as they bought produce. In the years since, Stone, now married, developed his friendship with Dunning until he was invited up to the mythic farm he'd grown up hearing about. When we went up to the farm, Dunning had been spending more time up there because he was coming off of his second DUI, says Stone. It was during that visit that he got the idea to shoot a documentary on the farm, which Dunning not only agreed to, but added to. In addition to filming him and his work on the land, Stone could also document Dunning's intended suicide. So that's how it was pitched. Man. 
Jesus. Uh, so yeah, it's it. This is a, a pretty, a pretty honest review here about uh, both Dunning and the film's message of it is certainly not you know how it's not romanticizing. Yeah, the farm life. That's a thing, and that's another thing about uh, Peter the man is that he's very captivating, but I would never want to be him. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can identify with like certain parts of what he's going through uh, and empathize, but I don't think anyone comes away from that farm thinking, Ooh, that's romantic. I would like to be him. Whereas big, biggest little farm, you're like, Oh, I would love for me and my wife to go and have this giant organic farm. Right. Well, with, with Peter and the farm, it's, it was more like, I want to be there. I don't want to be yeah. him, but I want to be there. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. So, uh. so maybe, maybe we should say something about the role of farming, specifically organic farming in, uh, climate change. I, I'm not sure there's a whole lot to say though, in terms of like adding to the conversation. It's like, oh, here's a few examples of people living responsibly, taking, you know, taking care of the land uh, in very different ways and for very different reasons, but in, you know, sustainable ways. Um, I, I don't, I don't, can you think of anything unique uh, to these movies that can be brought to that conversation? Well, I mean, there's always a thing where it's like the people that are doing it the the quote unquote right way. There aren't nearly enough of them to offset the massive industries doing it the quote unquote wrong way, right? Like there's not right. Like there's just not the the sheer size, the the scale to do that. And but, it's like you said, the biggest little farm, that sort of stuff, you know, bio biodynamic farming, that has to be what everyone is doing for that to make a difference yeah and that, and that's why like i read that and i kind of roll my eyes and i'm like do the jerk off hand motion like get a load of these <laughs> jokers uh but at, at the same time it, like maybe that's just the way it's got to go like maybe that all that has to be commercialized and commer and you know sold in such a way that people buy into it and it becomes the way that it's done because if that happens then great you know, it'll be pretentious and I'll hate it, but it'll be good for the planet. And that's kind of what's needed. Um, but the problem is like, you know, they're selling their eggs at the farmer's market, which I guess is fine. But then, you know, they're producing this produce, producing this produce uh, and then selling it to these like high end restaurants. And like that thing happened and keeps happening where like farm to table is considered to be something that's like a fine dining experience. Mm -hmm. um when really like someone needs to open like a farm to table applebee's like chain restaurant or something that's actually or, that's actually a really good idea it's like farm to table fast food yeah and the menu would depend on where you're located and what you have access to and what's in season and all that sort of stuff and I, you know, that's I a good that, idea i bet it's coming i bet it's coming yeah and you know hopefully it is and hopefully when it happens it's not expensive because that's a big part of the problem right i think I don't know, like it, it, we should be able to develop it in such a way where farmers markets become the market where you buy food, right? 
Um, and farmers markets are not expensive. No, at least not at all. In my experience, every farmers market I've been to is extremely reasonable. And it's cheaper than the grocery store, and it's better quality most of the time. Yeah, uh, you can go to a farmers market with twenty dollars and come home with substantial groceries. Yeah, we we've yet to go to the one down here, which is a shame, and we, we need to do that soon. But the one in Murfreesboro is always, you know, you you'd roll up in there with you know a couple of tins, and you'd get you know, a loaf of like freshly baked bread and like some great produce. Maybe you get some like canned stuff that somebody's made. Yeah. Uh, in your case, like you buy the bacon. And, yeah. Um, all that sort of stuff. I remember once I uh, got there kind of late and there's a, a farming family, um, some Asian family that I guess has a farm near town and they had all this kale out on this table. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, let me buy some kale. They were like packing up. And I was like, before you close down, let me buy some of this kale. And <laughs> I gave them the money for like one kale or, you know, like whatever their measurement of kale was. And since they were closing and they didn't have anything to do with it, they gave me literally like three like plastic shopping bags full of kale. <laughs> And how much of that did you eat before it went bad? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, I, 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 the problem then was that I had to try to like power through it. So I was like putting it in salads, but I ended up making a lot of like kale chips in the oven. Oh yeah, and that was cool. that was cool. Um, we we just lost like half of our viewers because you said that on the podcast. <laughs> I ended up making like a bunch of kale a bunch chips. Of kale chips. <laughs> Um, little, you know, a little Parmesan sprinkle on top, uh, you know, good things. The old like SNL delicious dish skits. I don't know if you remember that. Good things. Is that Um, the sweaty, sweaty balls? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but yeah, so how could I forget sweaty balls? But you know, farmer's markets, right? Like, uh, they're seen as kind of a novelty, but you know, that's part of the problem is why why should getting why should buying that quality of food at a you know reasonable price be a novelty and why should the and why should it be pretentious you know why yeah. should it, it just like i said why should kale chips be pretentious yeah you paid 2 dollars for that you know lifetime supply of kale <laughs> yes like that's not pretentious at all um but it, it like pisses me off when you hear people like Jim Gaffigan making jokes about that, you know, mm-hmm. um, where I think he's got a joke about someone's, you know, he's at a party or something and someone says they, they sprinkled in some kale. Don't tell anybody. They snuck in some kale to the soup or something. And he's like, I wanted to punch her in the face. Um, it's like, Oh I, no, you might get some vitamins and nutrients. <laughs> Right. He's Sorry. just holding up this mirror, you know, this sort of rose colored mirror telling people what they want to hear. Yeah. Um, we're reflecting like, themselves back. Yeah. We're like in a positive way. Arterial sclerosis is charming. <laughs> no, that kind of thing. Right. Uh, having a heart attack when you're 50 is like fine. It's normal. It's what that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, when it comes to the the usefulness of farming, I think you know if every farm could be like Apricot Lane Farms as far as their practices go, I think that'd be great. But 
to, to me, the, the most um, beneficial part of organic farming and their presence at farmers markets is the just immediate economic impact it can have. Um, it's such a good representation of how when people sort of take things like their relationship with food into their own hands, um, either growing it or consuming it in responsible ways and from responsible sources. I mean, you just have to do that, make a conscious decision to do that. And things can change if like in America, in this capitalist uh, economy where we spend our money is what makes things the way they are. And if we just decide that farmers markets are the thing, then they will be the thing. If that's where we spend our money, then that's what it'll be. Uh, and, and so just the idea that we have that, you know, relatively speaking here, small amount of power, uh, to just disrupt or interrupt um, or in some way scale back the industrial food economy by just simply going to a different place, you know, on Saturdays, buying your groceries on Saturday morning instead of Tuesday night or whatever uh, from a farmer's market instead of from some grocery store, uh, I think is, is maybe the most meaningful aspect of all this in terms of transforming a society to a more human scale to a more beneficial scale uh, with regards to environmental destruction yeah and, and like with a lot of things the biggest problem is access to those things yeah um, you know for people that live out in the middle of nowhere i was talking to somebody last night and i, I make this point a lot that it's always kind of astounding to me how no matter where you are, you're probably not very far from a dollar general, especially in the South. Um, yeah. It's always like the one oasis that's kind of out in the county, you know, the nearest grocery store is 20, 30 minutes away, but there's a dollar general at the end of the holler, like that kind of thing, like on the, the state highway or whatever. Right. Um. Yeah. But you know, it's just, if you're living in a, a sort of dense urban area, you know, that there should be some sort of movement, you know, and this is idealistic, but you know, fuck it. There should be some sort of movement toward creating some sort of, you know, farmers community market, um, the community market movement. There we go. Every corner you can get your kill, <laughs> make your kill. Just, yeah. Um, I, uh, that guy I mentioned earlier, Michael Abelman, uh, I think he has a book that's all about urban farms and sort of urban agriculture uh, and that movement. So I, I'd be interested to to check that out because um, you, you always hear mention of these things, but you don't – and you in a documentary or something, you see cool shots of like one cool organ, uh, urban farm. Uh, but yeah, I don't really know much about like – where they sell their stuff and like how people get there, you know, like what exactly is that economy? What does that economy look like? Practically speaking. Yeah. 
Yeah, but you know that's interestingly enough that's something that's left out of both films is the uh, the kind of economic side of it. Um, in Peter and the Farm, I guess it makes it's less present in Peter and the Farm, although you can imagine that he's selling most of the stuff. I would imagine, or else how would he keep his operation going? Um, but then in in a uh, biggest little farm, you do see them at the farmers market, like selling stuff, selling eggs, that sort of stuff. Yeah, um, it seems like they'd probably make more money just on those tours. Yeah. 15 bucks a head or something. Oh yeah, you know, if not more, like if the mill <laughs> is included in that. Yeah. And that you know, she makes that like giant spread of their, you know, farm fresh produce and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh their biodynamic produce. <laughs> um I can't like it's got I got to take up biodynamic shit after this. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll turn it into fertilizer. Wow. Scoop it up with a shovel. Um but yeah, so, so th- that part's kind of left out. And you imagine like Peter's probably like earning just enough that he keeps things going. Or just enough to stay in debt, you know. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, he bought he bought the farm in the late 70s, so maybe he, he got a pretty sweet deal on it, maybe. Yeah, know. maybe. I don't know. Uh, and, you know, it's not like he... It seems as if he's not anywhere where people would want to buy him out and like build something there. Yeah, doesn't look like it. So he's kind of got the ideal situation, it seems, for someone who wants to be constantly suicidal on a farm. (laughs) Well, he talks about how there was a sort of glory day, you know, to the farm. I think it's 1998 when he still had some of his family there. And, you know, he had the experience and his son had the energy and his whoever had the business sense and they all sort of came together and it was a a lively productive farm maybe maybe a farm that looked more like uh, the biggest little farm in its glory days but uh we're just sort of seeing the death rattle in the in the film and he doesn't really that i remember not that i remember not that i remember but he doesn't really explain what happens with his family right he mentions his wife leaves one day yeah, just like out of nowhere is what he says. Yeah, but you know, it can't be. It's never yeah. out of nowhere. <laughs> right. Um, so it kind of makes makes you wonder of like what went down and why he hasn't seen his kids in so long and why they hate him and all that. And like, I don't know, to talk to... The problem is I'm like too interested in this family now. I want to like meet his kids <laughs> and like talk to them and be like, what was it like growing up on the farm? Um, what was it like to have your dad take you out in a cornfield and be like, this is where you were conceived? <laughs> um, yeah, it, it felt strangely like like a, a weird sort of power trip move to like tell someone that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a uh, it's like Mufasa giving the speech at the beginning of the Lion King. <laughs> this is where you were conceived. One day, this will all be yours. <laughs> Oh goodness! And uh, like I, I don't know, I think a good encapsulation of the difference between the the outlooks on farming is the treatment of of coyotes, sort of, because in Biggest Little Farm it's a big deal, and John's very conflicted, and eventually he has to shoot the the one with the shotgun and all that, and that's his like big turning point of like this is what it takes to maintain the farm, 
And in Peter and the Farm, he just has a dead coyote hanging in his barn. <laughs> yeah, that's a good sort of emblem. Yeah, and so it's just hanging there. And at, at one point, they're like in the loft and it's hanging there. And, and he goes, you're ready? And he goes, ready for what? And then he cuts it down and it falls and hits the ground. He's like, ready for that? <laughs> and But then after that, he has this, this moment where he's like looking at it. And he's like, death is always the same. <laughs> he's like, it's just boring, just always the same. And uh, he kind of has this weird moment of, of reverence for the coyote of like, you know, sorry I had to kill you, but that's just the way the way it is and he drives him out and like dumps him in the woods yeah um it's just very like i don't know it's kind of like but doesn't he doesn't he make some sort of quip or musing on uh he, like death is always the same but life life is something i can't remember what he says it was good though he has a lot of those things and I, I, I even texted you after the film that like his poem that he reads about how oh, I yeah. have become the farm is is legitimately a really good poem, <laughs> like yeah. better than anything Rupee Carr could ever come up with. Um, it's so good. It even does that thing that great poems do, where it starts off with an observation about something completely unrelated, and then kind of comes back around to death and the farm and the work he's put in and all that sort of stuff. It's just it's amazing, really good. Yeah. There's not an inch of this farm that isn't covered with my sweat, my piss. It names my like every semen. Food. He says my seed. My seed, yeah. <laughs> Which is a good like double meaning. It's just like, I don't know. If I was in a poetry workshop, I'd be like, Peter, this is amazing. <laughs> um, and there's another one toward the end that's, that's really great too. But, you know, that's it, it's kind of that the reason I like it so much is not just that it, it it's good and it sounds good, but it's like you can tell it's born of solitude and experience and like deep rumination and pain and like all of the stuff that goes into good art, which I think it, it like, I don't know, he he talks about, he never comes out and says this, but it's kind of implied that he thinks of himself as kind of a failed artist. Because yeah, he's showing off yeah. his paintings and he's like, that one's not any good and that, that sort of stuff. Um, but like his art was sort of the farm and like his life and all this stuff that he's doing. Um, I don't know. It's just. I don't know. I've been thinking about this movie a lot. <laughs> it gets it gets it inside you for sure. Um, yeah. I, I almost watched it a, a second time. Like before we recorded today, I was like, I almost watched it again. I watched it like on Thursday, I think. And I almost watched it this morning. I don't know that I could. Uh, I need a minute, I think, to like recoup <laughs> a little <laughs> refractory period. And then, then I can go back and, and watch it again. Um, yeah. But, you know, everything like the way it's shot, the just the general story and like getting to know this guy. The sound work is good. The music is all sort of chosen interestingly there's not much of it but like the end at the end they play that song yeah um and it's really effective i think um just everything about it is just there's really also good. the the trailer for this film is outstanding like it really makes you want to see the movie i i didn't watch the trailer 
You should watch it. It'll pump you up. It like it feels like the movie, like like a in a microcosm of it. That's cool. And then you get like at the end, you get those like outtakes, sort of, that are him like interacting with the crew because you don't really see them very much. Like it's the focus is put onto him and sort of his interaction with the world, which is really well done, especially when they go to the they go into town and they go to the bar. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting at the bar and you just get a shot of him just sitting at the bar. Um, and it's just, it makes it more effective as he's like ordering the drink and he's like cracking jokes and trying to be personable. And, but then you see him get this look on his face like, like he's just in fucking agony. <laughs> <laughs> it's he's, he's having a hard time, Peter. Um, yeah. do, I, you said you couldn't find any more information on him. No, I, I looked around because I, I was curious about whether or not he was still alive for the most part. Yeah. And it's funny if you type Peter Dunning into Google, the first result is like, it, is Peter Dunning dead? Um, but no, I couldn't I couldn't find anything. I found a lot of promotional material for the film from when it came out. Yeah. But I couldn't find any like up to date stuff because, you know, it's not like he's on Facebook or anything. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. Yeah, so I I don't know. I, like I said, I assume it's just same old stuff, rolling right along, changing with the seasons, getting ready for need, a, another hard winter up there. We need to go up there and uh, get him on the podcast. Yeah, it's like it's like people that go to visit Wendell Berry. Yeah, <laughs> but like way more depressing. Except Wendell Berry like kills himself while you're up there. <laughs> yeah that's the thing like he kills himself live on the podcast (laughs) um and then our our listeners of which i don't know how many there are our listeners out in iowa are like oh wow that was (laughs) never expected that shit got real yeah this week it's like where do they go from here (laughs) how are you gonna top that uh, I have been thinking this just kind of like I, I'm kind of done talking about the movies, but just musing for a second. I was thinking about because, you know, we're on what was this episode 32 or something? Yeah. Uh, 32. Second, like if and when we get to 50, mm-hmm. we should do like a retrospective and do like each of us do like our top five or top 10 like films that we've watched. Yeah, that's a great idea. Because uh, I don't know if you noticed, but at this point we've talked about a lot of films. Yeah. <laughs> Especially like, you know, during the October stuff, we've been doing two at a time. And then yeah, we do doing and the, the auteur theory. Yeah. So. And that adds like, you know, six or seven at a time. Uh, so I think it'd be interesting to, and you know, all the ones we'll add between now and then. I think it'd be cool to come back and do that. Um, yeah. And it'd also be helpful, I think, to not just a, Oh, here's, here's my top 10 list, but a sort of compilation of like all these things that these movies have in common. Cause you know, we started to notice how, uh, the same issues pop up in different forms. Yeah. Um, you know, we're always talking about this question of the, the medium of film. Can it, uh, without hypocrisy, tell you know critique a a culture defined by technology Uh, how stories tend to expel mothers uh, 
while either critiquing the absence of care in our culture or succumbing to the absence of care, uh, like we talked about with the interstellar. Uh, so yeah, and, and just t- telling the truth to children and all these themes that like come up like every week, uh, it might be good to sort of go back through those in, in more detail than I just have. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so all that sort of, it'd be a good kind of like, uh, signpost, you know, of like a, a nice recap of like, here's, cause at that point it's going to be, we basically, it, we talked about this uh, off the podcast at one point that if we had put all this energy into writing a book instead of making a podcast, <laughs> we would have like this, you know, like multi-volume work at this point. Well, um, well, I don't think I think what we'd have is uh, uh, a shit show of notes. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, because these these conversations, I think, would serve as a good sort of brainstorm. And and they are illuminating, I think, recurring themes uh, that I think if we watch enough movies, we will have a sort of good idea of like the real problems that are being addressed. And I think we've watched enough movies already to have a pretty good idea. And, and a lot of it's that, you know, what I, some of those themes I just listed. Um, so yeah, I, I would love to, to put this on paper. Um, but I don't know. It's a, it's a question of venue, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, uh, something cool to look forward to. We've also future. talked about doing a anthropo sentences, uh, which yeah. I, I I would still would like to do one or two books just to uh, just to do something different every once in a while. Yeah, we, right now we're talking about, or we've been talking about doing it for Amitav Ghosh's new novel, uh, Gun Island, which came out a couple months Gunisland. ago. Gunisland. Yeah, uh, we would all, we should also try to do uh, the overstory by Richard yeah. Powers. At some yeah, point. I'm I'm gonna read that for sure. Um, because that is like you're gonna see some parallels in that with stuff we've talked about on the podcast that are gonna be like, wow, this dude wrote this book for me, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, all, all that stuff would be great. Uh, wh- one last thing to to mention because you you brought up this uh you know this recurring theme we've had of these missing mothers. Um, just looking at, you know, for a documentary, it's different, I guess, cause it's real life, but these were two very like male driven films and it's sort of backing up this long held thing of like farming is a very masculine trade, uh, a masculine work to be done, mm-hmm. um, of like subduing the land and making it produce and fertilizing it and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know, for the case of the biggest little farm, it's not as interesting, but with Peter, you have this, like the father just completely abandoned by his children. (laughs) Um, But also his, his story is, uh, you know, he was sort of orphaned as a child. Yeah. Uh, his mother passed away. Um, yeah. And it is a little bit different, but it's also, I think probably included for a reason, you know? Yeah. So I think if you wanted to do a psychoanalytic reading of Peter and the farm and not, not of Peter himself necessarily like a, a reading of him as a, as a person. Cause you know, he's a real dude walking around, right. um, but like of how he's presented in the film and that sort of relationship with the farm, I think that would be really kind of 
interesting. You know, we don't have time for it here. And I haven't thought about it much beyond the fact that I think it would be cool. <laughs> um, but just that idea of that a lot of stuff going on with parents and children and their interaction and yeah, the farm is being kind of a, he's kind of the father of the farm, but at the same time he is the farm. So he is his own father. So a lot of weird. uh, Yeah. The the kids leaving their father is synonymous with them leaving the farm. Yes. Uh, Because he's very much, you know, he's so identified with the place. Um, because he is become the farm. Yes. Now I'm saying like, if, if listeners, if you don't watch the movie, at least go and find the clip of him reading that poem because yeah. it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the poem itself, the way that it's presented and it just, I don't know. It's just really great. I agree. Yep. What's next? What's next for Team Zisu? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> next week we're finishing up October. So after that, we get back to the the fiction pictures, um, mm. and we're going to close out with the documentary. This changes everything from 2015. It is a film that was produced based on Naomi Klein's book of the same name. This changes everything from 2014. So we'll be talking about the documentary. We'll be talking a little bit about Naomi Klein and her writing. She's one of the most important, and we we're saying prolific writers about climate change. You called her the the Stephen King of climate change <laughs> books. She's published yeah, one like she, every one a, year. One a year. Yeah. Um, she has but one I think, out. I think Gosh. I think Gosh blurbed her last book and called her the the most important uh, environmental theorist around or yeah. something like that and she's she's around i mean she's around she seems to be pretty active not just writing i mean she was on i sent you that link to that episode of uh chapo trap house where she did an interview with them yeah she publishes and uh, essays and like videos and stuff on the intercept often as well yeah so we'll be talking about the documentary and then a little bit more about just uh domi klein's work and sort of i don't know maybe maybe one of the themes would be like the the importance of elevating a single voice or whether or not that's productive or or you know does do we need to focus on these climate vanguard people or is it better to look to mass movements or do they have sure. to work hand in hand you know all that sort of stuff yeah. um so yeah that's what we'll be doing uh next week So until then, uh, go to your local farmer's market, buy some nice produce, make a BLT. And also uh, stop driving automobiles. Go to the city in your car. (laughs) Yeah, don't drive cars. uh, Don't eat factory farm food. Don't buy fast fashion clothes. uh, Don't vote Republican. Uh, what's some other good things that we could do? Um, <laughs> don't put Twinkies on your pizza. <laughs> okay. That, that's from heavyweights. Oh, okay. <laughs> so not only did you, did you buy me? Or is that the, the movie? Did not only will I give you a light, I'll show you the light. Yes. Or is that a different? Okay. 
Tony Perkis. I'm feeling skinny, Tony. <laughs> okay, we're done. That's enough. <laughs>